welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And yes, it's that time of the year, folks, a uh, time when, you're, when many of our minds moves to those who have gone, who have passed, and our inevitable joining of that uh, particular flock. It's a very interesting time for those of us who are, if not obsessed, then at least uh, regularly in communion with the ideas of death and dying, because along with everything else, um, our, our relationship to, uh, to death and dying it seems to be undergoing uh, a great deal of uh, creative and in some ways distressing pressure, uh, since more and more of us are thinking about various endings on a global or national uh, level, as well as our uh, inevitable personal demise, uh, it makes the, the, the October season uh, even a little bit more uh, pressing and uh, powerful uh, in a way. And I think that all of this is to the good. Um, it seems that one of the things that all of us are dealing with in these uh, crazy days is fear, and that a more um, honest and full-bodied confrontation with, uh, with death and dying is a way to also help us navigate the world of the living uh, in, our, in our particular time and place, because the uh, fears that are stirred up by our contemporary condition are strong enough that you really need to hit them full, full, full in the face, if you will, or like look at them straight on. Uh, and one of the best ways of doing that is really um, going through your own relationship to uh, death and dying with yourself and, of course, all the wonderful people that you have around you who inevitably go away from you. Uh, this does not need to be a morbid exercise. I thought the, the success of... The Disney film Coco is really kind of mind-blowing on many levels, um, not, not simply its uh, uh, celebration of, the, of Mexican culture in a way that somehow was enjoyable and, and even a little goofy, but not at all cheesy. And like I, I went, one day I went on and like went on a hunt for like Mexican-American film critics who, who didn't like it, and it was really hard to find them. You know, so it was like they did a good job on that on that kind of always difficult uh, multicultural question. But beyond that, uh, the vision of the afterlife, the vision of the intimacy with the dead, which is a, a quality I think a lot of, uh, uh, you know, white America has, has, has trouble with, you know, the sense of being that there's a, there, there continues to be an intimacy with friends and, and ancestors who have gone. And anyway, I just, it strikes me as a, a, a good sign that we're opening up. So in, in, in order to honor the season and to learn more myself, um, I just stumbled across a, a press release about a Oakland conceptual artist, Lindsay Tunkle, who we have on the show today, uh, who's doing really, really interesting work uh, around uh, death and dying, both on a, on a kind of planetary level with uh, her pre-apocalypse counseling uh, project, which is an ongoing project we'll talk about. Uh, and she has a new book out, When You Die, You Will Not Be Scared to Die, which is a series of meditations with a, a nice little afterword and a, even a good bibliography um, that uh, bring together, uh, uh, well, kind of concretize some of her practice, which is at once kind of critical and probing in the way that, that you know, on some level all, all art should be, but also opening up the space for 
real change for actual kind of th- therapeutic improvement around some of these issues. Uh, so it's a really nice, uh, uh, nice mix that I think is uh, good to hear about in, in these times and again in this month. So, Lindsay, thanks uh, so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the kind introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, let's. I, I think. I think. Uh, I mean, I want to get to the book in a bit, but but the the pre-apocalypse counseling, uh, as far as I understand, is a project where you work with both individuals and groups, often with individuals where you kind of go through and do sort of meditation ideas around death and dying and if i if i got the detail right in a sports utility vehicle so i thought that maybe a place to start would be like let's say that i am i said okay i want to do pre-apocalypse counseling we meet up at a certain place i get into the sports utility vehicle what uh what happens then what what might happen <laughs> oh any any number of things really um well th- there is a like loose skit that I have like script rather that I've like created for these sessions. But um, every session is truly unique depending on where the person that's in the vehicle with me takes it. You know, it's um, apocalypse can be defined as so many things depending on who you are and where you're coming from. And so some people come to ask to do a session and are really like interested in talking about, you know, natural disaster. Others are interested in talking about political apocalypse. Others are interested in talking about, you know, heartbreak as an apocalypse. And um, so the, the structure is, you know, conversation in the beginning, but then there is, um, there's skill building that happens. We might learn to tie knots or, um, purifying water or um, how to just sit with someone and hold their hand and be vulnerable. These are all skills that we might use at the end of something profound. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's also visualizations. One of the big themes in in the work that happens to everyone is you're asked to grapple with at different parts throughout the session. Um, if an asteroid were about to collide with Earth and you had two minutes, what would you do? Would you try to survive or would you just kind of allow it to take you? Um, <laughs> how, how, how do people rank on, I mean, what's the kind of percentage breakdown on that? You know, it, it, this is actually a really informative part of my, pra- informed my practice a lot. A lot of people said that they would try to survive and that they thought they would survive. Interesting. And, yeah, this was really shocking to me because, um, like, we're like, and I frame it as an extinction level event, meaning you know, the the ninety five percent or more of the human species will go extinct in this event, and I, I attribute it a lot to kind of mainstream media and especially apocalypse films. Um, you know, they're really identifiable characters, and everyone identifies with the survivor really deeply and um you know surviving the apocalypse just makes your life so much more meaningful in these films (laughs) yeah that's a really interesting one you know i I often think that i I have the opposite tendency which is i i have a kind of i think in some ways like healthy fatalism uh in the sense that uh, a sort of negative situation arises and my first impulse is not to run screaming out of the room or to beat my way out but just to kind of accept the the new the new reality 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, when I hear that one, it's really obvious. It's like I just take those two minutes to collect myself, kind of get meditative, you know, open it up, you know, just, just, you know, like I've had, there's, I've had dreams uh, often, like probably one of the most recurring motif in my dreams uh, is um, being swallowed up by like a tidal wave, you know, there's a tidal Mm. wave coming. And sometimes I, it's scary and I, I try to survive, but a lot of times I just go, okay, here we go. This is how it goes. And, uh, and so it's interesting. Sometimes I go like, oh, I don't think that I mean, everyone's like that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know and, and it's neither, you know, it's not a win or lose kind of situation, but that's a really, uh, that's a very interesting thing. What, what else did you learn since you, you had in a way a, a good data set, there were all these different people who were willing to go through this kind of interesting form of therapy, conversation, experiment, uh, performance, um, and yet there's a real intimacy and honesty to, 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 to what people are doing there. What, what are, are the other things you learned about people or, or, t- or tendencies that people have around death and dying or the apocalypse that, um, that surprised you or, or became fuel for your, for your practice? Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think one of the biggest things is that, you know, with that same question, you know, would you try to survive? Or would you, you know, essentially like what you said, like lay down on the pavement and let the tsunami take you, is that when people are thinking about just themselves, the answer changes radically from when they then bring in, well, wait, who else might survive with me? Would I be alone? Um, Do I want to live on this? planet alone if i'm with a bunch of people do i also want to survive with maybe just eight people you know like once you start to kind of take the individual out of their isolative self-centered bubble also then the answers really change which you know really led me to think about you know what is it that we're fearing so much around death and dying and um you know, I can only ever speak for what I've learned. And honestly, mostly what I learned ends up being like in a reflection of my own process. You know, I would never like say, make any generalizations about humans or people in general. But, you know, the thing that I realized was so scary for me about death and dying was like this idea that I would be somehow still conscious or something and just really missing or longing. Um, And... I'm not sure what I believe happens <laughs> in the end, but what I guess I found is like people really get a lot from just trying to parse through these ideas. Like there's very few forums. Like if you ask people, you know, what is your first conversation about death? Um, you know, who, who told you what it was, you know, like how does your family have traditions, you know, about mourning? And of course we're speaking to a majorly white U.S. population that um, has strolled along my pre-apocalypse counseling, but, you know, it's heavily detached, you know, there's not a lot of space where people are even able to grapple with their own, um, these questions that almost seem really remedial, but once you're asked, you're like, wait, I don't know, you know? (laughs) No, it's it's astounding how much, when you feel like it's not even just a, a conceptual or intellectual thing, you can almost like feel the the there's this kind of fuzzy force field around these issues like in in the inside a family or inside a conversation with your parents or inside a conversation with people let's say you don't know that well so you're just kind of finding where what what parts of their world do they are they looking at what are they, what are they not looking at it's it's not rare to come across this this strange you know force field and and 
it makes me wonder now that so you know all of us are kind of thinking on on some level about these larger frameworks of mm-hmm. possible endings or or at least very difficult situations with climate change and and I would say probably like I mean definite rather yeah ending, right? yeah yeah no, no, no just meaning that like now I, so it's interesting that if the if 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 American culture in particular since that's what we're talking about what we know the best has this sort of unusual refusal to deal with oh you're actually dying now let's let's look at that let's sit with that although there's you know there's counter stories but by and large I think that's still true that to me that that seems to set a, set us up particularly badly to contemplate these inevitabilities on the near horizon uh, yeah. and and so that's where your, your work also strikes me as really interesting is that you're though you're not explicitly political on the in a kind of you know uh activist way about like you know forcing people to face climate change or da 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 uh it does seem to be you 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 have one foot in a in personal psychology or personal spiritual work and and the kind of therapeutics and the and reflecting and playing with that in an interesting way but there's also this like broader question about how do we think about endings now how do we come to terms with grief with despair with a sense of hopelessness with the anger that goes along with that and you know and I I mean I know in myself I, I think about this a lot it's one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk to you uh, was just you know I'm not sure necessarily how helpful ultimately <laughs> getting more intimate with these feelings can, will be but it's certainly the case that in order for us to look at what's coming down the, the pike we at the very least, and it, almost in an opportunistic way, have to like engage with this stuff like as mm-hmm. fully and clearly as we can. And do you see that that's something since you've been doing this kind of work for you know almost a decade at least? I, I don't go through your your CV all the way, but you know for a long for many years you've been working on this these themes and their obsessions, personal and and larger. Do you feel like a shift going on? Like, do you really sense that there's something moving in people in terms of how they connect the global situation with their their personal fears and 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 hopes i i do i do and and it feels like it's at the very beginning of a shift like i and and i this has been like moments like this have been recorded throughout history right but it's like when a when a culture gets confronted so deeply with um you know, having to see the reflection of themselves as individuals and their, you know, society, and they cannot recognize it, or it becomes so abstract because, you know, things are so jarring. You know, like I, for an example, I think when Trump got elected, you know, for a lot of people, that was this moment where like reality was really called into question, and it creates this kind of like despair that um, it's almost like a bottom, where then I feel like a lot of people start to open up and say like something has got to shift or else like my life is unlivable or the despair is too great or like you know how do I find value in the day-to-day without searching for something and and something to kind of like um soothe the the pain the wound and so I think that that looks like a lot of people um reaching out to try new um kind of spiritual solutions and remedies and um 
kind of really grasping for things that sit outside of the normative because what is now normative is not working and is, is scary. Yeah, um, yeah, that's really good. I, I, I've, I've noted before that I, well, on this show, we often talk, we've talked a lot about both Buddhism and, uh, or meditation and, and psychedelics. And mm-hmm. both of those things, I believe, actually in some ways properly framed, but, but you know, one way of framing them is that they're both practices of, of dying or can be mm-hmm. read as practices or potential practices of dying. And even though a lot of people don't necessarily focus on that side, they're more into the t- healing, transformative, um, even, you know, wor- you know, being becoming more creative or more comfortable with yourself or those, those sort of more life-oriented values I think they're both implicitly and sometimes ex- explicitly practices of dying. And I kind of feel that on some unconscious level, culturally speaking, that part of their their greater role in society now than 20 years ago, more, more mainstream, more people doing it, more attention, is kind of like a, a, an unconscious recognition that these things might help us navigate, you know, this turbulence better than a lot of other things even if it's not necessarily sold that way because most people still aren't ready to go i'm going to pick up a practice of dying you know it's more like (laughs) i want transformation and life and happy but there's something in there that's like also a way of letting go and i and i think that right there that's like you know what i find the most devastating about our separation from death and dying is I really do believe that in order to have that happy, fulfilled, you know, creative, you know, life that you're talking to, like, we have to be with our own mortality. We have to be with the mortality of others. Like it is, you know, death teaches us so much about living. It is a huge part of our identity that we just try to avoid, you know, like, I mean, all we see in culture right now is, you know, about people from different um, identity backgrounds, like reclaiming, you know, like who they are and where they come from, their histories, their lineages, like ours, all of ours is that like, we die. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody wants to like celebrate that. Nobody wants to like explore that. Nobody wants to prepare. In fact, it's just like, how do we create, you know, a longer and longer and longer and longer life? Um, and not that that's bad either, but yeah, there's very little resources put into. Yeah, it gets it gets pretty weird though that that the, the transhumanist you know quest for immortality and oh. it's kind of fun to actually. I don't know if you've had the, the the pleasure of arguing with someone who's like really an immortalist and who will call you out on being a pessimist if you're like, no, we need to extract value from death, and they'll go, no, death is like bad code. We got to fix this stuff, you know. And it's so <laughs> it's so radical that it's actually kind of fun to have the discussion because it's it's it makes you realize and i'm okay with admitting this like that there is there's a, a, a in a way a choice to mm. make death meaningful that that mm. that in our part one of the reasons that people i think that our culture is so bad about it is that most people just think of it as just like it's just the inevitable thing why think about it it's going to happen sometime so let's just mm. not pay any attention to it you know and just right. live and live and die. live and live and live until the you know the plug <laughs> comes out and you know, in a way, it makes a certain kind of sense. But if you're people like us, you can't. I mean, I never could not do that. Like I remember reading Carlos Castaneda when I was like 14, a little stoner <laughs> kid who was like, "Whoa, you know, man, man of knowledge." And then you know, 
and he talks about like death is always over your your left shoulder and mm-hmm. i just never forgot that and i always felt that way and i thought about you know i i i'm just one of those people who think about it mo- you know most days sometimes quite extensively it's part of my mm-hmm. practices and things like that uh, and, and 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 one thing you mentioned about identity politics is it's also like oh my god could there be a more genuinely universal feature of human existence that we really can recognize that all those people that you know scary ISIS terrorist and the the maniacal Christian meanie down in Louisiana who hates gays and everybody we everybody is all shared i mean without ambiguity no like reframing no like cultural contextualization or no you got to look at it through the post-colonial lens and you're like no we all get to do that and so it's a it's a weird universal that's a true universal which is hard to say these days with multiculturalism identity politics and the critiques of Western hegemony, all the things that you say, it's very hard to say, well, love is a universal thing. What does that mean? People mean different things by that, blah, blah, blah. But we all die. And so it's this, it's this weird like opportunity that's right in the room. And in fact, we have to look at it more and more. And yet there's still this kind of, kind of resistance. Um, how have you, what are the kind of tools and decisions you've made as an artist? I mean, even the fact that you are doing art and not therapy is already interesting to me. What are the, how are you using the tools of the artist or the particular approaches you've had in order to see what works, that what allows people to, to step into this room? Yeah, well, before I answer that question, do you mind if I go back to something you just said, which was this, this idea that, that death is universal? And I, I, I agree, death is universal, but it also just feels really important to note that, you know, Death is universal, but not everyone <laughs> how do I say this? has equal opportunities at death. And that feels important. And that feels a lot about where my work is, is that like, um, you know, depending on where you live, what your background is, lots of things about your identity, your encounters with death range from violent to not so. And so those things also, you know, death gets weaponized in our culture in a way that I think encourages the fear. Mm. And so reevaluating the value of not just like death is universal, we all die, but you know, if death, um, if we spend more time thinking about how we're going to die, maybe we also get to reevaluate the values that we place on lives depending on who they are and where they come from. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's really that that's really uh rich rich stuff. I mean, it's it's I mean, one of the things like I think of is I have you know, a, a, my a small group of of my more intimate friends where we talk we don't have children. And so we talk about like so, you know, you know, we're going to go through this thing here and you know, we'll probably still be really close friends. And so we you know, we we think about it we think about you know how you know at what point would we want the plug pulled how would we want the plug pulled uh what kind of festive environment would we want what kind of uh even what kind of uh, wake we would we would want what kind of celebration and you know we went to one you know a mutual friend died and we went to the memorial service and we were like that was 
that was pretty good, but really they needed to have a lot of serious drinking at the end of the evening where like all the scandalous stories come out. And, you know, <laughs> so it's like, it's this thing that's between us where we kind of like, and as we're doing that, we're also working out all these other things, you know, relationships to, in that case, intoxication or friendship or whatever, but also like the medical industry and how death is managed and, and, and drugs and how we think about suicide. And there's all these sort of big things that come up as we kind of practice, more practically than philosophically talk about, well, if we're, you know, if I'm around and you're doing, going through this, what kind of thing, you know, are you going to want? And, uh. So it does become, you know, a, you know, way way for us. But then, of course, that you translate that into all these situations where people have much less control over these situations, or or death is, as you say, weaponized through violence, through fears of, you know, of of yeah. uh, of violence. Um, uh, but yeah, just to, to to get to that 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 other question. I mean, in a way, it's I'll have a, I'm going to phrase it differently. When I when I read what you what you're thinking about what you're doing, I see the the let's like. You could also just be a therapist doing this. You could be somebody who wrote a new book about embracing death and here's these new death and dying practices and meditation all and, and a lot of the tools that you use. What is it about being an artist, doing this in the context of art? What is that additional quality that the conceptual art process helps you bring into what is for you clearly more than just an artistic statement. It's also an active attempt to heal and develop a culture that can play with these things. What is it that the art gives you uh, or the stance as an artist uh, to, to, to further that goal? It's a great question. Um, it, it gives me the freedom to do whatever I want. <laughs> and right so on. Like, you know, I, I mean, I actually thought for, you know, when I was like 18, I went to, you know, a couple semesters of regular non-art school to become a psychologist and quickly realized that wasn't where the passion was for me. And um, so I, I still the whole time remained very interested in um, the methodology of therapy, of psychology, uh, the histories of it. it. You know, we read a lot of that theory in art school and um, think a lot about the, the strategies that are used to try and understand the human experience. And um, yeah, but when, when I do it, I get to do it in an art context without a license and like, you know, emphasize that I'm not a certified anything. And then I just get to kind of be with people and, and kind of break boundaries, which I think also like in the field of psychology, people that are licensed are beginning to do this. They're beginning to question the boundaries and the certain, um, you know, quote unquote taboos or whatever, and, and push boundaries, which I think is great. But, you know, the, the hindrances, people maybe take it a little less seriously, but I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, asking the questions of like, you know, what makes someone, um, you know, capable or good at helping someone heal through something, you know, and why aren't these skills just taught to everybody? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, know? you know, that one is so key. What was I, there was some study and I'm trying to remember, you know, like everybody, I read so much these days and I can never like, what did I, you know, a week ago I read something about some study, but uh, they were talking about how 
and I think this is may, this is maybe an American trait as well. But I can't say, but when people are are talking to their friends and their friends go through some terrible difficulty, some terrible loss, or even like a, not even a loss necessarily, but just a very difficult situation. There, you know, the impulse is to help, right? The impulse is to intrude, to offer advice. You should do this. Here's what you can do. But especially with grief, you know, grief. Oh, well, you know, there's these things you can do, this thing, da 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 And they talk about just how if you're capable of just listening mm-hmm. attentively mm-hmm. with with a, a, in, an intimate heart that makes mm-hmm. no claims, no suggestions, no, no, no advice, that that process... Just that process is incredibly healing, just yeah. to be heard without any push towards a solution uh, mm-hmm. is amazing. And, and once you start to learn that, like I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm very aware of my own capacities of listening, and it's partly why I like to do the show. I meet people I don't know, and then listening, and we're trying to listen to each other. I, I really enjoy that process, uh, but with you know, more striking, you know, situations among friends or family, things that are really difficult. I see that there's such a different feeling when you're an intimate friend or even just someone who's in a counseling role and you really just listen Yeah, without an agenda. And that is so much, like so much of these sessions that I do is like someone gets an hour of my time for free. I sit with them. I listen mostly listen and ask questions that's the other thing like no i mean people i love people love being asked questions real like considered thoughtful questions which you can only come up with those questions if you're really actively listening and those skills like those are priceless and really so few people have them or have the energy to um, mobilize them within their relationships, you know? And, and I find also like when people are going through a lot of grief or a really hard thing, like I hear two things, right? People are like, everyone just like thinks that they know how to solve my problem. And after everyone's given me their advice, it's like everyone disappeared and people end up feeling really isolated and alone in their grief. Um, because like sometimes there's nothing to say about grief. Also, sometimes we just need to, you just need to sit with someone. Yeah. cry into their arms or whatever. Um, and this is very uncomfortable for us as well. You know, you know it's funny when you're saying this, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm also like, like skip, you know, one of the wonderful things of talking about this is we can, we can talk about very personal realities, psychological realities, the realities of self losing, but in our current condition, our current environment, they're also like, they're always double. There's always a, a global overtone to these things. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a friend say, a couple, you know, a couple of months ago, and it really haunted, really, really stayed with me that, you know, we were talking about what do we do? What do we do with the skills we have, with our position in society, with our communications, whatever, what do we do? What do we do? And he was like, you know, I think in some ways, we, it's, it's like, we're, it's hospice time, mm-hmm. you know, like we're, and it's so, it's kind of too pessimistic to think mm-hmm. about it just in those terms. But it's almost like bringing those skills of, just sitting, just listening, asking questions, being curious, sometimes having nothing to say that is, is part of what this moment calls us to again, without just being fatalist and giving in. And, you know, there's that, I think that's part of the problem is people hear this and they go, that just seems like fatalism. We have to fight. We have to fight. We have to fight. We have to resist and da, 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 da. Yeah, we do. But if we can't develop these other kinds of skills, a, we're going to be 
more neurotic and repressed in our motivation to fight and to resist. And B, and this is a really weird way to say it, but it's sort of true. We're actually missing a, a great opportunity. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. we can really, you know, there is this space of like really coming to terms with human existence in a different way because of the pressures of our moment. And, and, you know, there's no one that says that these two experiences are mutually exclusive, right? Like, how can we do the work to be ready to die at any time? Because the truth is, any of us could literally die at any time and still hope for life and hope for fulfilling, you know, longevity. You know, like those two things, they actually need each other, you know? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and I think this idea, I love this idea of like, maybe it's time for hospice. And, you know, not everyone dies in hospice. Some people come back, some people live on for years and years. But I think, yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, pre apocalypse counseling, when that work started, you know, five years ago, I was, that is really where I was, I had a performance where I tattooed on myself, the courage as a species to die. Because there was something that was proving to be so fruitful and fulfilling for people and for myself in really considering like you know human extinction is an option like and and especially like with the news that's come out this week about climate change and where we are and you know two degrees is too much of of a of a temperature rise like this is truly a possibility and until we really start to do the deep work that allows us to um consider it a reality mm -hmm. where it's hard to act as it's a reality, mm -hmm. you know, and we live in so much fantasy in our culture, you know, like, and, and going back to mainstream media, we've seen hundreds of apocalypses and hundreds of, you know, near human extinction, but guess what? They always survive in the end, but that's the movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, another thing I've, I've been, I've been thinking lately, I was just watching, I, I I blew it on the, the the season three Twin Peaks revival because I was like uh, I don't have time to go back and watch the original and I was busy and I just spaced it and so just recently I finished a project and so I was rewatching the original series and one thing I noted that that was really odd was that Lynch is really willing to show people in yeah. psychological agony and in psychopathological confusion and to mm -hmm. sit there. And it made me think of like, oh my God, I've seen so many violent movies. I've seen mm -hmm. so many apocalyptic movies. I've seen so many horror movies. I love horror movies. But like the narrowness of the emotional representation of in all that mainstream kind of film is extraordinary. When oh, you yeah. when you see something that's like, oh my God, this person is weeping inconsolably in a way that looks absurd and repulsive. Like I don't want to watch this anymore. You know, okay, why? Because that's showing you something we don't normally see. You know, if yeah. I see a someone who's frightened of a stock, you know, a serial killer, I I know that feeling. Okay, that's that horror fear thing. But there's all these ranges of emotions around loss in particular, around grieving in particular, but also around you know psychopathology, around actually being kind of crazy or actually losing the plot the way that that uh, Laura Palmer's dad does on the sh on the original series. Mm -hmm. It makes it made me realize just how narrow the emotional language of you know kind of mainstream media is around these things 
Oh, I so agree. And actually, it's it's the it's funny that you bring that up because that was really a, an inlet for me. Is in a few of these apocalyptic films, specifically the film Melancholia. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a Lars von Trier film, and it's Charlotte Gainsbourg and Kirsten Dunst, and particularly Charlotte Gainsbourg. She is in such despair at the possibility that this planet called Melancholia, which of course is is a metaphor for variant, you know, um, stages of neurodivergence. Um, you know, the, the fact that it may or may not come and collide, that her despair in this film, the way she emotes, the looks on her face, the way the camera sticks with her when she's just like snotty and like, you know, her whole face is wet. It's just it that kind of emotion. Um, there's something so repulsive, yes, but also attractive. You know, it's this like desire for the repulsive because we don't get it. And I mean, which also links like to sexism, right? You know, I mean, hysterical and hysteria and all these words used to describe big emotions of allowed women, you know, to be demonized in many different ways for, um, you know, centuries. And sure. really, it's like feelings are superpowers, you know, <laughs> like anyone who can sit in a feeling like that and really, you know, cry their way through it. I'm like, you're a warrior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've been I've been doing other th- a, a, a kind of personal practice lately of um, sensing a certain kind of sadness in the world mm-hmm. that is both about our sp- particular situation, but in some ways in existence itself. And noticing that when I was younger, I would often sense something like that, but then kind of wrap a story around it. Like maybe it would lead to depression or like, oh, there's something mm-hmm. wrong with me. How come I'm not feeling happy? I'm, oh, those people look happy or whatever. Go on some like kind of personal neurotic trip. And lately just being like, it's almost like the sadness, which is kind of like maybe even a foreshadowing of impermanence or, or of, lo- of losing everything that it's it's the impermanence that that has a sort of taste a kind of like a like almost a an odor like almost like a kind of fragrance and it's just part of the picture it's not that it's the only thing that's happening but that these emotions that allow us to kind of move into the room of death and dying or even into move into the room of the anthropocene in a way that we're emotionally open to that challenge it's the, part of it is going into big emotions like and 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 you know being a warrior in that and a, another part of it for me is recognizing that it's just always there it's like the death yeah. is always over your shoulder it's always there's a little it's a little sad or it's a little bit losing or going a little fast and and mm-hmm. sort of getting comfortable with that in a non fatalistic way non pessimistic way is a very rich uh for me, it's been a very rich kind of uh, process that is as much aesthetic as philosophical in a lot of ways. And it often takes going through the big to yeah. get to the kind of more nuanced. And yeah, I was reflecting recently that I feel like in a day or just in general, I'm often feeling like ecstatic and heartbroken all at the same time, you know, and 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 um, and that that's okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, I remember like a ch- in uh, I don't remember Shambhala Warrior. I don't know in some ch- in some Trungpa book. Trungpa, the Tibetan nutball from the seventies, uh, lovable scalawag. Uh, he, but he talks. <laughs> of, he defines the the warrior. You know, the kind of like the Shambhala Warrior. 
uh, by um, his or her uh, ever more tender broken heart. Mm. And that way of like that your the the compassionate action, the idea of like a compassionate action in the world as being linked to a broken heart that is actually just ever just refined. Mm. It's not that you overcome it. It's not that you succumb to it. It actually becomes a kind of sense that is refined. And so when I see your work, part of what attracts me and what attracts me to the fact that it is art and not therapy or, you know, art that kind of riffs on therapeutic elements is because it it offers a more complex bouquet of these emotions in a way that therapy for all of its power, for all of its, you know, usefulness is so routinized and kind of efficient and bureaucratized and it's about mm-hmm. practices that are going to get me this it's not about that more open unknown maybe fragile maybe dangerous maybe absurd dimension of wrestling mm-hmm. with these things that again i think your 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 uh your art does i want to ask you a question uh the title of the book is when you die you will not be scared to die and that's that's a, a taste of the kinds of meditations that run through it. Some of them are kind of funny, and some of them are very true. Some of them are really striking uh, when I when I read through it. But I'm I'm I just want to pull out that word scared. And and I you know in your afterward you talk about that it, that it was really your fear, this real intense sense of fear around death and dying that partly motivated you to begin this kind of work. And I'm just curious now, years into it. Are you any less scared? Some days. <laughs> um, I I think, um, yeah, I think some days I am and some days I'm not. It, I, it feels like it depends on how much I'm clinging to what's here. Um, and I think... I, I think I used to, when I first started the work, I think I would have said, well, I want to figure out how to not be scared to die. And um, I think now I realize that like being scared to die is an important part about dying, you know, <laughs> um, be it by examining what you're scared of when it comes to death, you get to figure out what is important to you, um, what life means for you here um, and so yeah, I think I'm open to it, like open to all the complexity of dying in a way that I wasn't. And um, yeah, um, I, I I was reading about some of your, one of your other uh, practice performance was was the parting practice rituals for endings and failure, which was also kind of a individual. As far as I understood it, you'd kind of work with an individual, but often um, using one of the amazing. Uh, death spots or in in uh, in the bay area you know you talk about going to uh, mountain view cemetery in oakland which is an amazing place there's some pyramid you know mausoleum there and we have the chapel of chimes and the uh the columbarium in san francisco is an amazing place so i just i just because i'm a local i'm i'm very california and my my kind of focus i was just wondering if you have any reflections on you know practicing in oakland practicing in the bay when you when you're when you're starting to move through space, either in the sport in the vehicle or taking people to do these performances, where where are your favorite places? What is it? Wh- how do you feel like in terms of the kind of psycho the the Thanatos psycho psychogeography of the, of of the Bay Area? Um, 
You know, I, I do love Mountain View Cemetery. That has been one of the best places because there you can find spots where there's just not a lot of people. So you get to be in public with the dead, but also private. And that is just like a really juicy, lush combination of um, site-specific variables. Um, also, I did a few at um, Land's End in San Francisco. And on... The days that again it's not super busy um that's really really lovely too just like looking over the ocean and, and you know the, almost everything around us can link to or be a metaphor for the end in some way um and and in this new project um you know pre-apocalypse counseling kind of felt like more of a trojan horse of a of a work you know people kind of come to like oh that's maybe kitschy or or funny or maybe you're gonna teach me how to fight zombies or something <laughs> and then we're like actually i'm gonna talk to you about like how broken is your heart and with this new part in practice it's much more direct and so mm -hmm. um, which has its pros and its cons but i have been finding that like doing it in public versus like in the car um does add a richness to the directness of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I just, you mentioned the kind of Trojan horse aspect of, of the humor in particular, and you know, the, there's humor in, in, in the book, there's an element mm -hmm. of humor in all of these things. How do you like, um, well, how do, I guess, how do, you, how do you think about humor in relationship to these, you know, heavier tasks that you've set yourself? Uh, how, how do you know when there's too much? What, is, what does it allow people to do <laughs> Uh, how does it work in that in your in your work? Oh, humor is like one of my favorite strategies, and I think it's so healing. I mean, I think you know, there's nothing like sitting around in a room of your closest friends and you know, laughing till your belly aches about you know the darkest experiences that you've all shared or whatever it is. You know, there's something so important about that, and um, and you know, the things that are the most scary in our culture are often so absurd which is why they're scary. And so to find the, you know, I'm a big, um, I'm a big fan of tragic comedy and tragic optimism and finding the points where, um, you know, your heart is breaking and you can laugh about it. Um, and so it's always been really, really present because I think, you know, it's, you almost have to cut some of this, stuff with the humor and 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 that being said i think there's a you know I, I i don't care that much for irony i don't think that's always super helpful or like that kind of sarcastic humor that is maybe trivializing but you know a sincere um humorous take to something i think is is just a great inlet to look at some of this really really hard stuff that's going on yeah, and there there is something really. Um, it's it's also uh, part of the picture, not just as a, a way of responding, but there part of what makes death, and even in some ways our current civilizational thing, it's it's absurd, you mm -hmm. know. In that sense, well, what is absurd? It means something that doesn't. It's not rational. We can't get a thought around it. But there's also always the. Or, you know, in an existential sense, you would just mean that there's no meaning there. So it's just this kind of absurd thing. But it, I don't think it's an accident that absurd is also a word that is associated with levity, with pranks, with mm -hmm. dada, with humor, with clowns, mm -hmm. with 
uh, um, a certain kind of very wacky comedy or, you know, Monty Python or, you know, a gallows humor. So in a way, the absurdity of, of death and in some sense, the absurdity of of like climate change when like we know, but we can't do anything. And every little thing that we do in our lives, we get in the car and we turn it on and we're like contributing, but it doesn't make any sense because the scale is so confusing <laughs> and it just, there's nowhere to point your finger at what it is and you're in it, but then nobody's doing anything, but we have all this knowledge and we could do something. I mean, what a great story. What a great comeback story. Like earth manages to get it together and use their, their monkey brains to just narrowly avert a terrible global disaster. Like what a great story, unlikely to happen, kind of absurd. But the absurdity is both the like, I'll never figure it out. It's a mystery and it's even kind of a horrible mystery. But mm-hmm. it's there's a, the humor's already in there. I mean, there is this kind of it's not lightness, but there's some way in which one you know the, there's an affirmation in humor that is lacking in the kind of morbid. I think it is light. I mean, when I like when I'm that in it in that place where I'm like I'm turning off my car and I'm killing the earth, you know, and then I'm like, wait a second, we are this tiny little planet spinning in the middle of an infinite universe like it only matters to us and if we're gone then it doesn't matter <laughs> you know like and 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 uh, i am not a pessimist and i'm not a fatalist but like i think having that moment um where that is like deeply felt even if it's just for a second every day i think is it's it's also really freeing and liberating on a personal level but you know like something you know i'm i'm making a bunch of new work right now and it's all kind of stemming from this like everything matters nothing matters and this like oscillation that i feel every single day while living in this world and in this culture and and with people who are just walking around in despair because of financial disparity and because of the state of of the world and who our president is just all of these things and it's like at one minute I'm in complete terror and dread and the next it's like but you know in a thousand years will it even matter and I think that's important and it is light and it is absurd and you know it's all those things yeah. it's heavy. Hey, so you have a you have a workshop coming up here in San Francisco at, at Adobe Books um, Saturday, November third in the in the evening from six to eight. What what's going to go down uh, at, at that? How are you going to play with? Because yeah, somehow somehow I suspect it's not just a normal reading <laughs> of your book. No, it's it's not a reading at all, actually. <laughs> um, but I'm going to be kind of taking how I came to writing the book um, as kind of a, a form and a strategy for the people who come to the workshop to create their own personal rituals for kind of like honoring their own mortality and working through it because really that the book did just start out as me writing lists and hopes of relieving and soothing some of the terror I was feeling around death and dying. And so, yeah, we're going to sit in a group and have some discussion and do some activities and a visualization and, um, and then create rituals together. And um, yeah, it should be good. There was a workshop a couple months ago that was really, really beautiful. And I think, you know, anytime people are willing to kind of walk into a room of strangers with their heart a little bit on their sleeve, magic generally happens. Yeah, yeah. That's clearly something that people are tapping to, like the way you can, you know, whether it's the sort of death dinners or you know ways you can kind of bring people together in these 
new situations to, um, yeah, to, to find a, it, it kind of helps reframe and refresh things that we, we might have very static ways of dealing with, uh, um, individually. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what kind can you, I mean, we just have a few minutes left, but I'm just kind of curious, like what's a visual is like, what's an example of a visualization that you would take folks through if we just, um, it's not too long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, well, so one that I've been doing a lot, um, with this particular work is, um, asking people to kind of come into intimate contact with a a few, well, nine truths about death, which actually comes from a Buddhist meditation, but I've altered it a bit. And, um, but you know, things like, really getting into your body and feeling the the truth that like, you know, your body is dying right now, um, that your time is always running out already. Like we're always getting closer to death, that your body is incredibly vulnerable, that there are so many more things that could kill you and could keep you alive. Um, asking you to imagine, you know, all of your possessions, all the things you love and then letting them go because you can't take them with you. And, asking you to envision all the people that you love, um, your parents, your children, your lovers, your friends, mentors, and then letting them go. Um, and then, you know, and a few other stages and eventually, um, you know, letting go of yourself, your like physical form. Mm. And then to maybe let your brain go blank, maybe to imagine that the exhale that you take next is your last, um, these types of things. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's but I was I was wondering. I, I had a I had a a yoga teacher. I've been uh, years ago. You know, all the yoga classes they always end with shavasana, and they'll tell you it's corpse pose. But that's about all you usually get, or almost exclusively get. But he would always go, you know, practice dying, like go for mm-hmm. it. It's kind of funny that there's so many people who who do yoga and they they do it. They have that in there every time, and yet it's very rarely. You know, it's a great opportunity to do exactly what you're talking about, yeah. you know, but it, but we don't really do it. <laughs> yeah, And it's funny because it's like these, it's really simple stuff, you know, <laughs> like the stuff that I'm doing with people, it's, it's really quite simple, but it, there's, you know, just so few venues to do it or to do it with others or to be, you know, led through in ways that aren't attached to religion or mm-hmm. other things that people don't feel comfortable with. And so. Well, that's a key thing. Is that uh, that t- I'll just we just have a couple of minutes, but um, I uh, that was one thing that really struck me. I went back to Burning Man for the first time in t- in ten years, and I had gone for a, since the old days. And uh, one thing that I that the probably the most positive thing about it was that the temple there, where people go and memorialize people who they've lost over the previous year, it was like a very collective, very sacred place where people spontaneously became kind of quiet and focused for the most part and and people would go there to grieve and whatever but it, there's no religion i mean there's yeah. just it's just it, it's so it's like my god like to have a place where it's not just medicalized it's not just part of the secular reality but it's it 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 allows the sacred but it has to have a slight shift in it which is maybe partly again what what art provides you yeah yeah the the opportunity to have spirituality without um an institutional structure you know i think that's what a lot of people are missing to be honest do you can you imagine taking 
building on the collective potential of the kind of work you do where there's more about bringing people together in a place in a in a ritual or a process that's that's much larger in terms of numbers of people yeah i mean you know that came to mind with pre-apocalypse counseling and i actually wrote a really small short-run book called pre-apocalypse co-counseling and it was kind of in hopes that like people who couldn't come and sit in my car for 50 minutes could have access to some of the work. But um, I, I think I would be interested in doing that more direct, like with the work I'm doing now, but you know, it's tricky. You, you, I don't know. It's a complicated question. It is. No, it is tricky. I just, it's, I, I, I make sense that it's, uh, you know, complicated. Yeah. I mean, I feel like creating, you know, the thing that I feel passionate about, what I would consider is like, you know, creating more of a like format for other people to go out and like really practice active listening with each other. Like, how do you ask really good questions of someone you're with? Like, how do you resource yourself emotionally and spiritually enough so you can go and truly be there for another, you know, like these just seem like really simple tools that were not taught, you know, how do you connect with your gut? Yeah. How do you, you know, all, how do you tap into empathy, you know? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we got to wrap it up there, but I mean, those are just, that's a wonderful practice. And again, the, the, that you're doing it under the domain of art, it, I think it adds a, a real marvel to it. And, and, you know, best, you. best of luck with the, uh, with the, when you die, you will not be scared to die book and your, your forthcoming things. And again, uh, Adobe books, Saturday, November 3rd here in San Francisco, 6 p.m. So th thanks for joining us on the show, Lindsay. Thanks so much, Eric. It was great to chat with you. Excellent. All right, All right. folks, uh, until next week, keep your minds open. 